welcome to Martyr She Wrote. I'm Anna Clark Miller, and this is a podcast on religious trauma, so consider this your trigger warning. Let's dive into a topic that's serious as hell. Martyrs, today we are going to have somebody on the podcast who you've actually heard before. His name is Josh Miller. So Josh, uh, tell everybody what it is that you do. Sure. So as the co-founder of the Empathy Paradigm, my specialty is really in the LGBTQIA plus community as a development coach. And so what that means is that I work on a personal and professional level with members of our community in a variety of ways. But my passion really lies in coming out coaching and allyship development. And so with coming out coaching, I work with clients that are thinking about coming out, have just come out or came out a long time ago and just have some residual things they're wanting to work through. And Allyship development goes hand in hand with that, right? So someone who is coming out or has come out and has loved ones that want to know how to best support them, you know, I'll do group sessions or one-on-one allyship coaching with anyone that just wants to learn how to be a strong ally for someone. And that translates into the professional side of things through our trainings. We do a lot of inclusivity trainings for different companies and allyship is just as important there as it is in our personal lives. And so uh, we talk about inclusive culture building, what it means to be trauma-informed and how that relates to allyship. What is an ally? You know, all of the things that kind of go into that. And that is where I belong. That topic, working with those clients, that is where I really come alive. But I by no means identify as any type of spiritual person or religious, but I think that if I had to say that at any point in my life, I felt close to a God, uh, it's been walking with someone down their coming out journey and, and seeing them accept their authentic self and celebrate it for the first time. Hmm. Yeah. So we're here to talk about religious trauma. How do you feel like the specialization that you have in LGBTQ issues connects with the religious trauma topic? Well, a lot of my clients have dealt with religious trauma. It's kind of the water we're all in. And I'd say a vast majority of people in my community have been impacted by some form of organized religion in one way or the other. And I think that the biggest way that that has shown up, not just in my client's life, but in my life as well, has been through conversion therapy. Hmm. Okay. Conversion therapy. That's an interesting term. What's your definition of conversion therapy? Uh, I think the accepted definition of conversion therapy is any type of intentional practice that is designed to change someone's uh, sexuality, or I think now it includes their gender identity and expression as well. Now, my definition is expanded out a little bit because I don't necessarily think that It has to be the intentional practice with someone who's claiming to be a counselor. 
you know, we have this picture of what conversion therapy is because we hear a lot about the more dramatic side of it, the more really intense abusive side of it, but that's just not all encompassing. That definition doesn't really explore the nuances and doesn't really explore the subtleties of what conversion therapy can look like. So my definition really is more along the lines of any attempt to change an immutable quality of someone, any part of our identity that is deemed bad or wrong, and then try to be changed. Okay. So it sounds like probably this practice is something that it's probably been around for thousands of years, just maybe under different names. But the goal ultimately is, you know, when when somebody's identity does not fit the expectations of a religious group, they sort of submit to leadership, molding them in the quote, right direction. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. And it has been around for a very long time. And this is where that definition can really take on new meaning because for a long time in certain cultures, it wasn't about sexuality. A lot of times gender expansiveness and um, varying sexualities, if identified at all, were celebrated. But that's where we can really see the definition expand to include things that we may not typically associate with a conversion practice. So I definitely understand why conversion therapy has been so pigeonholed to exclusively refer to sexuality and gender identity. But I do think that we are doing a disservice to others that are experiencing this type of pressure and this type of expectation to change a part of themselves that can't be changed and shouldn't be changed. So it's a give and take. Okay. So tell me, a little bit more about how you became aware of and interested in the topic of systemic religious abuse. So systemic religious abuse as a concept, I think that it's important to make the distinction between religious abuse and systemic religious abuse for the same reason we just talked about making a distinction with the definitions of conversion therapy. Right. When we talk about certain things, when there are certain topics that people are talking about, it is important to be able to give power to certain terms. And I think the reason we see some terms lose their power is because there are certain groups and certain individuals that want to divest themselves from anything pertaining to that. You know, and a lot of times it's it's not as malicious as that sounds. It can be as simple as like, well, that's not my experience. So I don't really want that to be associated with me. And so when we talk about religious abuse, I think that it can sometimes be really easy to pin that on extremism or to say like, oh, well, that's a, a deeply Southern church in the backwoods with no real oversight or... When it's like, oh, no, 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 like, I don't have any interest in that. That doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not a part of that in any way. It's just really excusing any type of responsibility that one might have one way or the other, whether that's direct or indirect, or, you know, to really just divest ourselves from what's really going on, which is, in my opinion, systemic abuse. 
And it just so happens to be in a lot of organized religion and uh, those communities. Okay. Okay. I think I want to talk about the no true Scotsman and formal fallacy. Anna, are you familiar with that term? Uh, Vaguely. It's like the idea that like, oh, no, no, no. You can't say that's true of Christians because a real Christian would be loving and kind and they wouldn't do that kind of thing. So the person doing that must not be a real Christian like that. Yes, that's absolutely 100% what I want to talk about. So for anyone that has never really heard that term before, or just really isn't familiar with it, uh, the no true Scotsman fallacy is an informal fallacy. And it's when someone holds a uh, universal generalization and then tries to protect that generalization by excluding any type of uh, contradicting evidence. And that's usually through like asserting some type of purity like using those emotionally charged words like true, authentic, genuine, real. And so in your example, like, oh, that's no real Christian would do that. They're not real Christians if they do something like that. That's not true Christianity. Those are what's known as an appeal to purity. And that's another name for that fallacy. Those are the two main ones, no true Scotsman or an appeal to purity. And so whenever there's a counterexample to a commonly held generalization, one of the first lines of defense that we see from the group that holds that generalization is an appeal to purity. So in this case, uh, in the case of religious trauma, religious abuse, it does sound like that. It sounds like, well, they weren't real Christians. And I think that your podcast episodes present counter examples to generalizations that Christians typically apply to themselves and their religion. And so talking about religious abuse as a part of the evangelical Christian system doesn't leave a lot of room for an appeal to purity. And I think it can establish a starting point for authentic conversation. Hmm. Okay. All right. So you're saying that we can't sort of oversimplify it like that, but instead we need to look at how often is this actually happening by people who do identify as Christian? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How often is this happening and the why? Mm. Why is this happening? I think that's, that's the key that a lot of people don't take the time to really explore. No one's really curious about that except the ones that are getting hurt. Because if we get too into those details, we may find some of the answers that we don't like. And complications are scary. Nuance is scary because it threatens a lot of the beliefs that we all hold about ourselves. And so when there is a complicated matter like religious abuse and the why behind it, it is a lot easier to simplify it with an appeal to purity and say, well, they're just not true Christians. That's just not going to happen in these churches that are more in love with Jesus or are more this denomination or anything like that. It just simplifies it. And uh, when we can really take the time to have those conversations and get the data necessary, that's when we start to find that there is more of the systemic issues at play and not just these one-off extremist examples. Okay. So what kind of data do you have for us today about this happening in real life? 
Sure. So I want to present both anecdotal and evidence-based data here because number one, my story is just my story. And if I just present something anecdotal, it leaves all that room for someone to say, well, that's just his experience. It's someone in Indiana that went through that. It was this type of church. And I, I don't want my story to be that linchpin in some type of no true Scotsman argument. So we'll look at both. However, both will have to do with conversion therapy. I want to be clear that the data I have, whether it be anecdotal or evidence-based through peer-reviewed research, does not lead me to the conclusion that organized religion is just in general overtly harmful. I don't believe that the entire system needs to be burned to the ground and scrapped. I don't believe that every Christian is intentionally doing harm. And I think it's important to set that precedent right up front because that's one of the biggest thought blockers and conversation blockers that comes up when we talk about these types of matters. I'm not trying to hold every individual Christian accountable for the Crusades. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that there's nuance and complication here. And I want to be very clear up front that I'm not scrapping Christianity as a whole. Okay, cool. So where do you want to start? Let's start with conversion therapy as a topic, a little bit more about what it is, what it can look like, and some of the statistics that come along with that. Okay. So mm -hmm. in my life, it looked like one person trying to change my sexuality through, I guess you could call it conditioning. It was attempting to make me feel disgusted by my sexuality so that I would like pull away from it or that I would not want to do that behavior. It's the same concept of spanking your kid, right? Like if you can attach pain to a behavior, then they're going to want to not do that because we, we want to avoid pain. But the issue is that my sexuality is more than a behavior. And that's true for anyone. It's not simply a behavior. It's part of us in a variety of different ways. And so that conversion therapy can take on different forms, depending on if it's on gender identity, gender expression, uh, sexuality, that type of thing. And a lot of us are familiar with the more severe ways that that has shown up in the past. Um, but if you aren't familiar, some of the more severe ways can be ongoing, aggressive, physical abuse. Most of the time, it's just verbal abuse, but it can go so far as like electroshock therapy, uh, chemical castration, um, forced celibacy through genitalia cages and um, chastity belts. It sounds very extreme to the point where someone's like, oh, that can't happen here. That doesn't happen here. But like it happens all over the place. And we would be very unwise to dismiss something outright simply because it sounds too extreme to align with your personal experience. On the less uh, sensationalized side of things, it can look more along the lines of just ongoing emotional and verbal abuse from an authority figure. And that verbal abuse can manifest in 
just being called names. It can be forcing the person going through the conversion practice to call themselves horrible things or showing someone pictures of dead bodies, people that have passed from AIDS, you know, things like that, where it's just, Mm. it's a very intense exposure to things that would make us want to change that part of ourselves if we could. So it sounds like the goal is to invoke fear or disgust, all in the hopes that that will kind of convince somebody to change who they are. Yeah. Invoke those feelings through methods of violence, Mm. whether that's, you know, emotional or physical. And, you know, I think we've seen all throughout history. And I think now in 2022, we see that when those demands aren't met, the violence escalates to just straight up murder. Wow. It really it really shows itself in the trans community. We've lost so many members of the trans community this year alone. The numbers are just continuing to rise. And I think it's because we are seeing a decrease in the subtleties of conversion practices. And that's leading to an increase of overt violence against the ones that they want to change. Okay. So I know that some churches will have like recovery groups and such where, you know, you go there if you're struggling with a sin issue. And for a lot of churches, having same-sex attraction or a different gender identity can be counted as one of those sins. Uh, is what, like, would that be considered conversion therapy? Yeah, it would be considered conversion therapy. And I'm glad you brought this up because this is where that systemic nature comes in because it doesn't stop with these intentional groups because like you said, it is viewed as a sin. Gender nonconformity, you know, homosexuality or even asexuality or anything that's not heterosexuality is viewed and oftentimes taught as a sin. And now we can get into the doctrine of it all. We can get into the scripture of it all, but I'm not here to change anyone's belief system on how to interpret the scripture one way or the other. I'm not a theologian. I am not an apologist. I don't, I don't want to do that because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the scripture says or what the holy documents say really doesn't matter to me because if you're teaching that something is wrong with somebody and they have to change it. They have to change this part of themselves that they cannot change. It's going to create an unbearable amount of shame. It's going to create an unbearable amount of anxiety. It's going to raise the risks of suicidality and it's going to increase suicidal ideation across the board. And that's not just with sexuality. That goes all the way to, hey, you are a sinful being. No matter what, you will never get away from it. You are going to hell unless you change these things about yourself. And then the argument can, of course, be made about, you know, Jesus coming to erase all of our sins. But there is still the nature of repentance. And we wouldn't need to repent if those sins were wiped out entirely. Because we are fallen. Like, let's talk about that terminology. We have a fallen nature. We are fallen. The language that we use to describe our nature and our identities, when it is wrapped up in something that is shame-based, 
it's going to do harm. When you are convincing someone that who they are is bad, who they are is wrong, and they have to change parts of themselves, it's going to do harm. And it does do harm. It's rarely effective anyway. Shame is such a poor motivator. In fact, most of the time when you use shame as a motivator, it actually just disempowers people because they feel like Mm -hmm. they can't do anything because they're so inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. It disempowers so many populations, not just the queer trans non-binary community. And think of some of the other language that we hear in churches regarding our identities, regarding our natures, regarding who we are as people. A lot of times it's not going to be language rooted in goodness. Mm. It's, you know, we have to deny our flesh. We have to take up our crosses. All of these things that can really increase that understanding that who we are is innately wrong and bad. And if you are already part of a vulnerable population, like the queer or trans community, those messages are already internalized on a societal level. And so then when you go into a place that promises they have the answer, they have the solutions, and they offer this love, but there are strings attached, it amplifies that rejection that we've already been experiencing and that we already have had placed on us. And so, you know, I promised you evidence-based data and the research is there. I don't want to fixate on it in this podcast because it's there. If you just Google conversion therapy statistics, it's that simple. When it comes to any practice that aims to change someone's sexuality or gender identity, the rates of suicidality skyrocket. The rates of depression skyrocket. It's there. All you have to do is look for it. One of the statistics that I typically like to bring up when we teach, when we do an actual training on suicidality and inclusivity, when you're looking at like youth statistics, one of my favorite ones is that having a supportive adult or authority figure in their lives decreases their risk for suicide by 50%. I mean, just one person, one adult that affirms their identity decreases their risk by that much. Hmm. So if the importance of a having a supportive adult is so high, I can imagine what the impacts of having a really unsupportive adult in your life would be. Exactly. And when we're talking about unsupportive, we're not talking about some of the more sensationalized things. We're not just talking about kids kicked out of their homes. We're not just talking about kids whose parents tried to kill them or who are consistently bullied at school. What we're talking about is just not having your identity and sexuality affirmed. Just because there's no like overt physical abuse does not mean that their identity or sexuality is being affirmed. When you are part of a system, whether that's a social system, a religious system or school system or otherwise, that does not affirm who you are, affirm your identity. That's when we see the rates of mental illness rise. And that I think it really is a testament to exactly what you said. If 
having your identity and sexuality affirmed is so important helps in such a way that it decreases that risk by 50%. Imagine what having your identity and sexuality condemned does, you know, having it condemned on a regular basis. And I think this is where my personal story intersects. When I was young, I didn't have support at home. I didn't have support at school. I didn't have support alone because I hated myself. So I didn't even love myself. And then I didn't have support in my church community. There was no one affirming my identity. And in the early 90s, there were no media positive LGBTQIA plus examples. There was no way that I could have my authentic self affirmed in any way. And I know that that's not just my experience. There are statistics, there are even meta-analyses out there that show the rates of the LGBTQIA youth population. It is staggering to see how many kids do not have a single affirming adult or even having one friend that they feel they can trust with this part of themselves. So you alluded to your own story. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Not at all. So I've always known that I didn't really fit in with my family or with my school as I got a little bit older. With my family, I mean, I grew up in a rural town in Indiana, and even those that didn't claim to be Christian or go to church were still deeply impacted by religious morality in one way or the other. And so there really was no tolerance for anyone that was different. There was no tolerance for diversity of belief, thought, skin color, attraction, anything. It just it just didn't happen. And while my parents weren't abusive by any means, they were also impacted by that. And they did not know how to support a child that may be different. You know, when I was young, I didn't come out of the womb saying, put a dress on me. Like I, I couldn't express how I might be different. And since they were not expecting any type of difference, they didn't know how to encourage, empower, or support someone that may need to explore that. That just was not part of their parenting tool bag because it's not something that they were taught. And so when I was young and uncomfortable with boyhood, it was corrected. And when I say uncomfortable with boyhood, I don't just mean like I was like, I don't like the color blue. It was more than just bucking the stereotypes of what it means to be a boy gender. Uh, it was this internal discomfort with all of the expectations and social pressure that was put on me to have this manly identity. Even as a four or five-year-old, like I, I know that there's going to be at least some people listening to your podcast that are like, okay, what manly expectations are on a four-year-old? Okay, did you grow up in the country? <laughs> They're there. You have to wear certain things. You have to like certain things. You can't play with Barbies with your sisters. You can't wear pink. 
you know, I'm not allowed to express myself verbally in the same ways. I remember one time I had heard my older sister use the word cute to describe something. And I was expanding my vocabulary. That's a normal developmental period. And I use the word cute to describe like a pillow or something. Was it cute? No, it was probably ugly, but it was small and I like liked it. And so I used the word that I had learned and I was rebuked for it. I was told not to use cute. Like, don't, don't say that. That's not, that's not what that is. And one Halloween, my sister had a a Minnie Mouse outfit and it was this really beautiful kind of silky dress that I really liked and she really liked it. She liked the way she looked in it and how she felt in it. And I was like, well, I want to feel like that. And so when I put it on, I was shamed mercilessly by my older sister and I was made to change by my dad. And that message was clear. Those types of things are not for boys, which I was reminded on a daily basis I was. And those corrections, however small they may seem now, really did a lot of damage in the long run. And as I got a little bit older and I had no way to understand or learn about gender identity or gender expression, I began to conflate gender expression with sexuality. And so things like femininity were now associated with being gay. Being attracted to boys was now associated with wearing a dress or using certain words and things like that. So the conversion therapy started early Mm. because those parts of myself were already being corrected. And those expectations of change were being placed on me right from the start. And then, you know, when we got involved in church, I was about eight or nine years old and it really ramped up because at that point at eight, I'm old enough to understand that I'm not wanted. I'm old enough to understand that there are some real serious consequences for being different in this town. And then here's this community that's saying this promise of acceptance and love and desire. Oh my God, there was someone that not only wanted me, but that created me and wanted me. That was a big thing with my parents. I didn't feel wanted by them. Now, did they dote on me and were they very loving and caring? Yeah, absolutely. But I didn't feel like they wanted me their gay son, their gay gender fluid son. I felt like they wanted this masculine son that they had created. And that is internalized. And so when I heard about this heavenly father that did want me, that knew everything about me and still wanted me, I was all in. I was like, take me there. But then there were strings attached. It was... Yes, he wants you, but what you are doing is getting in the way of that Hmm. because of your decisions and your behavior and your badness and wrongness. He can't have you. He can't have a relationship with you. You can't go to heaven and experience that love like everyone else. And so now I had an explanation for why I felt so wrong. They gave me the language of my internalized hatred. Mm. 
they were like, here it is. Here are the words that you can use to describe why you want to die. And it's because your sin is separating you from God. Your sin is separating you from the divine. So you can't possibly know true love. You can't possibly know what it means to be happy. Of course, they didn't use those exact words. It's way more subtle. In children's church, it's more along the lines of like honoring your mother and father and, and, and don't lie. But then there's always, it's always slipped in there. That heteronormativity, that cisgenderism is slipped in there saying like, this is how it's supposed to be. And so it gets lumped in internally too, of like, yeah, don't lie. But also I'm not going to tell the truth about this. Yeah. Like what, where does that leave me? Right. And so that combined with purity culture, which I know we touched on in your episode, like it just really did a number on who I wanted to be, who I was, who I thought I could be. But every single day from every single direction, I was being told that who I am is wrong and I had to change it if I wanted to survive, not even live, not even like thrive or be happy, but like to just survive. There is no place for me in this world unless I change. And at this point, the thoughts of suicide were passive. It wasn't, I want to kill myself because that's a sin too. And I was like, well, I can't even escape that way. It was more of, I just don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to be in a world that doesn't want me. Who, who wants to go somewhere where they're not wanted? Who wants to exist in a place where you're uncomfortable all the time? And I started trying to find an answer on my own. And that did lead me to conversion therapy. I wasn't forced into it. My parents didn't put me into it. I wasn't kidnapped in the middle of the night and taken to a shame camp, which does happen. I sought it out. My uh, senior year of high school, I was back and forth between a few different churches because I was just... I was desperate for belonging and I was desperate to find where I fit. So, you know, I, I bounced back and forth. I was so desperate to fit in that I never considered that the places I was trying to fit in would never hold space for me. I, I couldn't, I didn't even fathom that because of the messages that I had heard from the religious communities. They were saying over and over and over again, you belong here, you belong here, you belong here, all while pushing me out. And so, when I was trying to understand my pain and exclusion and isolation, it didn't make sense for me to consider a religious community to be the perpetrator of that because they're saying it's this way, even though it's not. And I didn't, I don't, I didn't understand what gaslighting was. That wasn't a term that was really used back then. And so I didn't get it, but I went to one of the pastors at one of the churches that I was going to and told them that I was struggling with same-sex attraction, right? Because that's that language of hatred that I was talking about earlier. That's that language that we were taught to use because being gay wasn't an identity, it was a choice. And so that choice would be a sin, which looked like struggling with same-sex attraction. And so I did. And I said that. And he was like, yeah, of course I can help you. This person with no licensure, with no experience in mental health uh, whatsoever, 
with not a whole lot of experience in ministry, I might add, said, yeah, I can help you with that. And that help looked a lot like harm to me. It became a weekly meeting where, like I mentioned earlier, he would just try to make me so ashamed of that part of myself that I would give it up or I wouldn't want to do it anymore because that was the whole thing was that I just didn't have enough faith or I just wasn't trying hard enough or that some part of me must still want to engage in same-sex attractive behavior. Otherwise, this could just be taken. If I would just lay it at the altar, I'm like, I'm trying. Like, I don't know what that even means. What does it mean to lay it at the altar if not crying until I throw up? You know, like, I don't know. I can't hate myself any more than I already do. So when you're telling me that I have to, like, hate my flesh and die to my flesh, the part I'm fixating on is die. Die to my flesh. How do I do that? Well, I think it might be an actual physical death. And it just wasn't making a whole lot of sense until we had a moment where I stood up for myself and I was reading out of Leviticus in that one passage, 1822, that says that man should not lie with another man for it is an abomination before the Lord. And we had harped on that and harped on that and harped on that. And abomination is one of those words that wasn't really used. So my only context for that is like a monstrosity. It's horrible, awful things that are disgusting and people are scared of and that murders whole villages and things like that. So to internalize, I am an abomination. I am something that was not supposed to be that went against everything that I was hanging on to that was keeping me alive because that was really the only thing that I had left was that God created me intentionally. Even if he didn't want me this way, he did create me. But now with that language, I'm an abomination. It sounds like my existence was erroneous. I wasn't supposed to be like this. And uh, that was kind of a breaking point. And so I said, no, that I don't believe this. I can't. I can't lay something like this down at the altar because I don't believe that I am this. I don't believe that I am so disgusting that I should be feared and destroyed. It doesn't make sense to me. And he said, of course, it doesn't make sense to you. It is you. Did Frankenstein's monster understand he was a monster before the end of the book? <laughs> No, like it, that was kind of the whole point of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was the self-actualization of this monster. And mm. that was me in that moment is I was starting to understand that that's what I was. And to prove the point, I had to take a Sharpie and write abomination on my chest and then wear it like a, like a scarlet letter. And then I had to wear it under my clothes for the rest of youth group that night. I was a youth leader. So I was on stage opening the service, playing in the worship band, praying for people with abomination written across my chest as if it wasn't 
burning its way through to the very core of <laughs> who I was. And uh, I mean, it stayed there. It's Sharpie. It didn't come off after one shower or two or three even. And I showered twice that night multiple times the next couple of days. And you know what? On really bad days, I still shower more than once. And I still scrub my chest like I'm trying to erase that. It's still with me. And it really was almost the uh, final nail in the coffin, you know, not just metaphorically. I knew, I knew that at that point, there was no place for me here. There's no place for me in Indiana, in my school, in that church, with my family. There was no place for me in this world. And now I knew there was no place for me in heaven because I couldn't change this part of me. I couldn't get forgiveness for a part of me that I will always have. And what do you do with that? Like, how do you reconcile that understanding with your really intense desire to escape that pain? And honestly, I think that was the only thing that prevented me from attempting suicide. The belief that, it was either heaven or hell or alive on earth, but that didn't stop me from daydreaming about it. You know, like as a last ditch effort, I went to a Christian college to uh, go into ministry because I thought, Hey, maybe I can just, maybe I can work off this debt and I can just buy my way into heaven. Even though that literally goes against the very doctrine of evangelical Christianity, but I was desperate so I was like, all right, I'll just do it. Like, I will just work my ass off for the rest of my life in the hopes that God will be like, all right, come on in, I guess, you know, whatever. Get in here. Yeah, come on. Well, silly Billy, come on. Like, you did it. <sighs> but I mean, I knew, I knew that wasn't going to work, but I still tried and, uh, those four years at that Bible college were just an amplified version of the conversion therapy I had just been through with that pastor. It was a brand new level that I honestly could not have imagined like what could be possible. What was it that made that experience at Bible college different or like a whole new level? So we went to chapel five days a week, Monday through Friday. We had an hour long chapel. We were expected to be uh, involved with the local church and attend every Sunday. Uh, and usually Wednesday, like that wasn't in our uh, student handbook, but it was like an expectation. On top of that, we were also expected to be involved in a student ministry where we were leading in some capacity. The student ministry couldn't also be working as a children's pastor on that Sunday morning because you, you still have to get fed, right? So like it would have to be a second service. And that's what a lot of people did. And then on top of all of that, most of my classes were Bible-based. So like you want to talk about a cult, you want to talk about a commune, 
that's what it was. We really had no time for any type of outside influences like jobs and friendships. And we were actively discouraged from having friendships at even our rival Bible college. Like I went to an Assemblies of God institution and there was a Baptist Bible college nearby and we we weren't friends with them. They were our rivals. And yeah, did you rumble? We did on the basketball court. It <laughs> was a mess every single time. Um, I mean, it 70% of my waking time was spent in some type of theology environment. And I mean, even our like base core classes like math and things like that still had some type of like ministry tinge to it. And there just was no possibility for critical thinking, diversity of thought, any type of divergence from what that curriculum demanded. And then on top of all of that, we even had like hall devotions that we were expected to go to. And, you know, we were also expected to be edifying one another and holding each other accountable. And then like there were class council opportunities and there really was no escape from that severe consequences if we went outside of that community in any way. I mean, our language was standardized. We had specific terms that we were using that definitely non-Christians wouldn't know what the heck we were talking about. Were there echoes of that that conversion therapy practice of of encouraging like conformity or suppression? Absolutely. We were policing ourselves and our peers. Like we were expected to tattle. We were snitches. Like we were expected to confront our quote unquote brothers and sisters in Christ and hold them accountable and be above reproach. And listen, the things that we were policing could be anything. And I mean, policing each other's bodies, policing each other's morality, policing the way that we spend our free time. Can I tell you that I got in trouble for relaxing in my room instead of engaging uh, in like another ministry or spending time with my peers? And I was like, y'all, I am with them a majority of the day. Can I just have like three hours? Can I have one day where I'm just like alone in my room doing nothing? But no. Idle hands are the devil's playground. Absolutely. And so anyone that was neurodivergent that maybe needed to be alone for a little bit, anyone who had a different body type that clothes just fit differently you know, was expected to conform. Um, anyone that was a little too effeminate, any male body, I guess, that was a little too effeminate was expected to man up. There was a big emphasis on being manly, being uh, these like good godly men and what that means and being the protector of the household and of Christianity and I guess virginity and things and, uh, you know, I just don't fit into that trope. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, it, it was just, and like, even the clothes, 
like even the clothes that we were wearing, how we were like dressing up, you know, like there's a reason that there is a stereotype on how youth pastors dress, like the youth pastor uniform. Yeah, we wore it. I think at that point we were inventing it. We were expected to be a certain way and any divergence from that, we got in really big trouble for and um, possibly lost our scholarships, uh, lost our attendance even. They could they could kick us out for anything deemed against their rules written or otherwise. And I saw it happen. I saw kids, a few different students that were kicked out simply for the suspicion of being gay. Hmm. Like I was suspicious. <laughs> like I was very suspicious. And so like I was always on high alert and uh, like my fight or flight was activated all day, every day because I was in danger all day, every day. Hmm. And, you know, we were being uplifted as these like heralds of the Lord's work and grace. And like, we were continuously told like, this is the premier Bible college in the United States. And like, we've been around since this amount of time and you're highly desired being here. And so like being kicked out was essentially like being kicked out of your future. Because like, if you were kicked out of that school, any pastor in that denomination was going to know and they weren't going to want you. And so like, it was very high stakes. I mean, looking at it now, I'm like, well, it was whatever, but then it like, it was high stakes. That was my entire life. I had nothing. And even though I was miserable, at least I could blend in. The more I was like studious and the more of a leader I was on campus, the more praised I was. And so I began to associate, you know, praise for what I was contributing and praise for what I was doing. Um, I began to associate it with my identity and like that's my value and my worth is what I can contribute to this. Yeah. And I mean, the message was still clear that. I needed to change. And in all of those sermons, I mean, again, at least eight sermons a week, chances are pretty good that we were hitting on conformity, that we were hitting on different conversion practices. And it really was, I mean, every single day was something along the lines of you have to change this part of yourself in order to be lovable, in order to be worthy and holy. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's not isolated to my Bible college. That's a lot of church communities. And you know, at my Bible college, we weren't really straying from the overall like understood doctrine found in scripture. Like most of what they were teaching was pulled directly from what the interpretations the I mean I guess common interpretations through that denomination are but I think that's when I started really wondering like is this system set up to make us feel this way and and then I was thinking along the lines of like oh this system is designed to keep us holy this system is designed to teach us you know, how to repent and how to be Christians and la la la. And then now it's like, yeah, that system was designed to teach us how to be Christians. Mm. It's the tone, right? It's different because back to that definition of conversion 
practice, when you are telling someone that they have to, to be another identity, that's what it is. When you are telling someone you need to die to your identity and become Christ-like, that is a conversion principle, Mm -hmm. you know, and it goes deeper than that. And those four years did irreparable damage. And that one year in actual conversion therapy did irreparable damage to me. And, you know, there's a reason that I'm still in therapy two times a week working through this. And, you know, like there are parts of me that are healed and will heal, but it doesn't go away. I mean, the studies have shown suicidality in general, but as the result of conversion practices, it does not go away. You are more than likely going to struggle with suicidal ideation in one way or the other for the rest of your life. And, you know, it's, it's there. We want to talk about anecdotal evidence. It's there. And it's something that on a daily basis, you know, and it doesn't look like I want to kill myself (laughs) anymore. That time has been healed. But now it looks more along the lines of like having to remind myself when I make a mistake that I'm not bad, that my partner isn't going to leave me, that my business partner isn't going to fire me, that, you know, I am still wanted and I am still loved and I do have value outside of that. But those conversations in my head are a struggle. It's an argument. It's not just like a cute little reminder where it's like, oh, there's a post-it note on my mirror that says, be you, be true. Hmm. Like, no, it's like a hard argument in my head where I have to confront those things. Well, that makes sense when you were told from age eight that if you didn't successfully change and and stop being bad that you would be abandoned you know not just in this world but in the next you know and so of of course there's sort of like a default pathway in your in your brain as there is in mine and and a lot of people that we know where it's just like anytime i recognize that i'm imperfect that is a threat a very existential threat that I am going to be rejected and abandoned and left alone Mm -hmm. forever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one thing to fear like isolation here, right? While I'm alive, it's one thing to not want to be alone (laughs) here, but it's another thing entirely to feel like you might be alone for eternity. Yeah. And not just alone, but tortured, like burning in a lake of fire for eternity, all because I came out this way, all because I was created this way, or maybe it is some type of mistake, but one that God can't just show grace for. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's just so unfair ingrained yeah yes yes it is so unfair but it is so ingrained in my psyche now and it didn't happen 
just because I went through intentional conversion therapy. It happened because I was part of a religious system that promoted a change of identity. Hmm. When I look back and when I work through a lot of my experiences, yeah, a shit ton of things come from that intentional conversion therapy, but there's so much more that has come from just being a part of the church with an identity that was expected to change. And I think that that's true for a lot of people. And I just happened to have it kind of thrown in my face. <laughs> so I, so I have the opportunity to think about it and examine it because listen, for people who aren't gay, for people who aren't trans, for people who aren't overtly attacked by religious institutions and communities, it doesn't look the same. And so it can be a lot more subtle and insidious. But for those of us where it is over, we're forced to deal with it right from the start. We're forced to recognize what it means to be excluded and rejected when you're told that you belong. Like we, we have to confront that early. Whereas people in majority populations or with a lot of privilege, they're not always in a position where they are forced to reconcile that. And so these things happen and they're being told, no, it's not happening. And there's no real way for them to gauge whether or not that's true. What do you say to people who still do hold to the belief that homosexuality or gender nonconformity is going against God's design? You know, and I think for people who believe that way, they can easily convince themselves that what they are doing is loving when they are saying, hey, you know, you need to change and you need to really address this issue because even though I would like to just accept you for who you are, you know, God doesn't. What do you say to people like that who have good intentions and yet are still doing harm? I think my answer changes on an individual basis because it depends on the type of harm that's being done. But in general, I can say that the, the number one way that I see that manifesting is when people give the I love you, but speech. Mm. And it's the like, I just love you, but I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I don't believe that this is the way that God intended it, but you know what I believe. And from my understanding, love should not have a qualifier. There should not be some type of string attached to the way that you are loving someone or the way that you're expressing that love. And so if you love someone, just love them. You don't have to center yourself by expressing your belief. Like, listen, honey, chances are if you believe that way, we fucking know it. We know it because we're trained to know it. And we can tell in the way that you look at us. We can tell in the way that you speak about us and to us. We know it's not about you. Yeah. And if your love is about you to where you have to talk about yourself to express love, it's not love, dearie. It's not love. You know, it's it's self-fulfilling and it's self-indulgent. And that's not 
the message of the gospels. <laughs> it just doesn't make any type of sense to center ourselves in a conversation about someone else. So what we need, we being my community and we being humans more than anything is just love is, is acceptance and affirmation. And, you know, celebration is a whole nother thing and we can get into that later, but we need you to just say that you care and leave it at that. We need to hear that there is a place for us, whether that's in our own homes or in the schools or in your church, there just has to be somewhere for us. And if we can't ever get to the point where we know how to take up space, we're going to look for ways to remove ourselves from that space entirely. Yeah. So when you love, decenter yourself, decenter your beliefs, decenter your hesitations and uncertainties, and just center the one thing that really matters, Yeah. which is your relationship with that person. Yeah. Well, and I might add on to that. If the way that you're loving somebody encourages them to consider killing themselves, maybe you're not doing a very good job. Yeah. Maybe you're not getting the handle on this whole love thing, yeah. you know, but that is, I love that you said that because a lot of people will hear that. Someone's like, oh, that I'm not telling people to kill themselves. Right. That's not me. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying I love you, but if you don't change, you have to die. Like I'm not a crusader, but that is the appeal to purity. And that goes back to what we talked about. It doesn't matter if you're saying, go kill yourself. What you're saying is you have to change this part of yourself. And saying that leads to an increase in suicidality. That's that complication that we have to be able to talk about and explore. And that really is the crux of it is that if your love <laughs> is based on that belief, that belief is killing people. That belief almost killed me and it has killed three of my friends so far. That belief murdered a friend of mine and murders people in my community on a daily basis. It's that belief that someone with this identity has to change that is doing irreparable harm. And that belief is integral to religious systems. Mm. Man, that really got me. Yeah, because it fucking sucks. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's only by dissociation that I don't break <laughs> anymore talking oh, about girl, it. Oh, girl, same. <laughs> but it's true. I don't want to go to another funeral. I just don't. And I don't want to have to hear another Christian look at me and say, well, I didn't, I didn't do that. That's not me. That's not my belief system. You know, like do something about it. If that's not you, then fight against it. Don't, don't just be passive. Yeah, I agree. But I think that's where people get stuck is because how do you fight against something that is integral to 
the belief system that you are a part of. You know, like if you have hmm. a Christian who doesn't believe that the Bible advocates for discrimination or anything like that, cool. But then are they actually a Christian? Are they actually part of the religious system? That's where it gets so complicated. And that's where the questions get really, really, really hard. And people get stuck. I get stuck there. I get stuck when I'm asking people to do something. I'm like, okay, first of all, I don't have the answer. And that's why is because I don't want to challenge that. I don't want to tell someone what to believe or how to believe it. But I also don't, I also don't want to encourage the perpetuation of harmful doctrine. And I, I don't want to perpetuate systems of violence. It's a really, really fine line. When I work with Christians who want to be allies, a lot of times that's the sticking point because it requires a hard look at what their faith actually demands of them and what their belonging to a church community asks of them. You know, what are they willing to confront? What are they willing to change if they find that it's necessary? I don't know. I think I think I also get stuck in asking people to fight back against a system that they are still a part of. You know, I just don't know that at that really root base systemic level, a whole lot of change can happen without confronting the fact that it is the system that might have to change. Um now, of course, there are a lot of a lot of ways to to address symptoms, right? And I think maybe that's what you were talking about is addressing some of the symptoms where it's like, oh, someone who's obviously hurting their congregation or someone who is overtly discriminating in one way or the other. You know, there are ways to go about being an ally and an advocate like that. But how far will that take you? I agree, but I'm also thinking that if you are a Christian who is willing to rethink some of the assumptions, some of the interpretations in scripture or the inerrancy of scripture, you know, then tell the people in leadership over you in your religious system that you're not okay with us just leaving this unaddressed anymore. You know, like enough people have died that it is time to reckon. It is time to say something's got to change. And maybe that means we're going to feel like we're compromising. But if that's what saves lives, surely God is behind that. I don't know. If I was to not give a solution, but if I was to encourage someone, a Christian in that position in any way, like in, in some way to like do something, it would be to reach out to someone like me and have a conversation. Open the door for vulnerability and curiosity and start by asking questions. Hear someone else's experience and maybe hear how what you believe has contributed to that experience, even if you yourself didn't do it directly. And, uh, Decenter yourself from that conversation. 
don't take it personally. I know that Christianity is an identity mantle that people put on and wear around. I know that. And so a critique of Christianity can feel like a critique of who you are. And accountability for a system can feel like accountability for you. But that's not the case here. We are decentering you and making it about the problem because you're not the problem. The problem is a lot of different things. It's toxic theology. It is problematic leadership or church systems that are founded on interdenominational arguments and hatred. Like there are some very real problems that we can look at fighting together and it doesn't have to be you that we're fighting against. So I think that the conversations are the first step down the pathway of figuring out whatever it is that needs to be done, whether that's a systemic overhaul or addressing the symptoms till they go away or whatever it may be. I don't know, but we know that there's a problem and this is the first step. Like we are on the same team. We all want to love each other. We all want to further, you know, humanity in one way or the other. So like, let's work together and uh, we have to understand one another to do that. Well, Thank you so much for telling your story. Is there anything else that you would like to say to our listeners or any last thoughts you want to leave us with? Uh, Yeah, this is a very complicated and nuanced topic. And my beliefs on certain facets of it waver. They change. I mean, depending on (laughs) what I talked about in therapy that day, you know, and like there's room for that. Um, There's room for complications. And so I would imagine that if you're listening to this, you're also wavering. But if you have no one else to have that conversation with, I'll have it. I'll have it with you. And I won't have the answers. I won't pretend to have the answers. But I'll ask that you do the same, that you give me the same respect and recognize that maybe you don't have the answers as well. And maybe together we can find an answer or at least find the right path to get to one. I mean, my email is just as simple, josh at empathyparadigm.com. I'm happy to offer a space where I'm not going to judge someone for a question. I'm not going to shame you for not knowing an answer, but just intentionally open up a conversation in one way or the other. Yeah. Hear that, martyrs? You've got homework. I think I forgot to do this in my episode, but I've mostly been asking people to tell like a funny church culture type of story. Do you happen to have one? Mm -hmm, I do. (laughs) I do. And I noticed that (laughs) because I binged your other episodes. (laughs) But And uh, I noticed that you did that at the end of every episode, except your own. Um, So we may have to go back and add that. But I do have a funny story. So like I mentioned earlier, very quickly, I grew up Assemblies of God. And if you're not familiar with that denomination, it's more of the charismatic side of things. So lots of very, lots of very expressive church services. And one of them There's probably about 50 or 60 of us youth group kids in there and people are active. They're moving around. Uh, They're not just like sitting or standing in the pew. They're like wherever you're like most comfortable. Oh, yeah. We used to call you uh, spirit led people. Oh, we uh, called ourselves that 
<laughs> well, it was more like a slur among the Baptists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, yes, that's why we owned it. But anyway, anyway, the story <laughs> is that as the spirit led, we would be walking around or like you could do whatever. But there was such an emphasis on cool. I mean, we're teens. So like looking cool and things like that. And listen, church cool and actually cool, very different things. Yeah. Like you're getting totally slain in the spirit. Yes. Oh my God. Slain in the spirit. We could have an entire episode about the terrifying, traumatic things that happened in like charismatic Pentecostal churches. Slain in the spirit. Slain. Mm -hmm. That means like dead people fall over. Murdered. (laughs) But it happened. Oh my God. You beat me to the punchline of the story. So sorry. A lot of times the music would swell and everyone's emotions would swell. And so like being slain in the spirit was a common thing where like you're overwhelmed by the spirit and you fall over and now you're like laying prostrate on the ground. And so there was a hierarchy in the youth group of church kids. And like, if you're in leadership, that automatically bumps you up a level. And there was one there was one kid who was fairly high up there in the social hierarchy. And I just happened to have my eyes open. And I was a creeper during worship. I loved to spy on people, which is like problematic considering I was so scared of people spy- spying on me and judging the way I held my hands and like worship and stuff. But I would do it to others. Like, oh my God, look at that loser over there. His hands are like funnel shaped and they should be <laughs> out in front of him. You're like, oh, what a sinner. Yeah, what yeah. a sinner, LOL. But no, I would just watch. Well, anyway, so this kid is walking around and he's just like really feeling it, feeling the moment. And he was walking in between the chairs and the altar because like, listen, if you wanted attention, that's where you were going to walk because everyone is there. Mm -hmm. Whole thing. And he was walking and he ate shit. He fell. Like he had his hands up and he tripped over something and just like went, went like full on could not get his hands down fast oh. enough and like hit the ground face first. Oh, I think he was humiliated in the spirit. He was humbled in the spirit, but he like <laughs> he hit the ground so hard that he did that like body bounce thing. Oh no. And, but like there was an audible like bump over the music. And then he just like he just pulled his hands in. And just laid there as if he had been slain in the spirit. And and that was like the perfect cover. Because who's going to call him out? Who's going to say, you weren't slain in the spirit. You tripped. And I'm not going to do it. And so I just sat there like laughing inside, knowing that when he gets up, he is going to have some kind of carpet skid mark on his face. (laughs) And and like, that's going to be a badge. That's going to be a badge of mm. honor that he was slain in the spirit so hard <laughs> that he didn't even brace himself. He just down he went and he was in the presence of God and God was working through him. <sighs> and I just knew, I knew that's what was going to happen. And lo and behold, homie stood up and he had this carpet burn oh, no. from the top of his forehead down to his chin. Like I said, when he hit, it was like, like, <laughs> on it and it burnt his face (laughs) and wouldn't you know it everyone everyone knew that he was so slain in the spirit that like he didn't even feel it and that was the whole thing he's like oh oh am i hurt i didn't even know and i'm like listen pal i saw you (laughs) when you hit the ground i saw i saw that it hurt you so bad that your tears 
were not because you were in the presence of the Lord, but because you were in the presence of pain. I saw that. (laughs) No one else knows, but I know. And God knows. And now he and I have a secret together. You are such a bitch. Oh, oh my gosh. (laughs) Being a Bible bitch was like, like I was number one bitch of every Uh church that I was a part of. I'm sure that was fearsome to behold. But yeah, it, that oh gosh, that's one of my favorite stories. <laughs> that's a great story. Every every time I trip now, I'm going to be like, mm, thank you, Lord, as I'm standing up just to see if I can play it off. <laughs> yeah, as the spirit moves. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here and I will talk to you soon. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Well, that's all she wrote for this episode. If you have any questions, lean not on your own understanding. Email me at Anna at EmpathyParadigm.com. Bye. Bye.